1: Hey guys, it's Gary Vay Nerd Shop, and you're listening to the Front Row Entrepreneur Podcast with our girl Jen.
0: Our guest today is originally from London, England, is the author of the New York Times bestseller Essentialism: The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, and the founder of McEwen Inc a company with a mission to teach essentialism to millions of people around the world. Their clients include Adobe, Apple, Airbnb, Cisco, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce.com, Semantic, Twitter, VMware, and Yahoo. Our guest is an accomplished public speaker and has spoken to hundreds of audiences around the world, including in Australia, Bulgaria, Canada, China, England, Holland, India, Ireland, Italy, Japan, Norway, Singapore, South Africa, and the United States. Highlights include speaking at South by Southwest, interviewing Al Gore at the annual conference of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and receiving a personal invitation from the Crown Prince of Norway to speak to his annual innovation conference. His writing has appeared or been covered by Fast Company, Fortune, HuffPost, Politico, and Inc. Magazine, and Harvard Business Review. He's also been interviewed on numerous TV shows and radio shows, including... NPR, and NBC. In 2012, he was named a Young Global Leader by the World Economics Forum. And as I said, he's from London, England, and now he lives in LA with his wife and their four kids. He graduated with an MBA from Stanford University. Welcome to the Front Row Entrepreneur Podcast, Greg McEwen.
1: It's so great to be with you. Thank you, Jen.
0: Well, I'm really thrilled to have you on the show because first of all, I've read your book three times now, wow. Audio and the Hardback. It's had a huge impact on my life and my business. But secondly, I've learned that my audience consistently lists your book, Essentialism, as their favorite or the most impactful business book that they've ever read. So it really just made good sense for me to invite you on the show. And I'm thrilled that you said yes, because I mean, when the godfather or the father, really, I guess, of Essentialism says yes to something, you got to feel a little bit good about that, right?
1: Well, tell me, what's the impact of Essentialism been for you?
0: Gosh, well, it's been that I have always have, you know, 42 different balls in the air. A mom of three kids from 11 years old to 19, and I'm running a business. And inside that business, I have several different offers, projects, podcasts, live streams, courses, all those things. And you can get so caught up in saying yes to everything that it's the trade-offs, yeah. right, that you well, talk on, about. In your book. We
1: have to, we have to sort of stop there because... Because what you just described it certainly sounds like the problem.
0: Oh, that I have too many offers and stuff? Well, I don't
1: know. I don't know. Maybe. But that seemed like a long list of activities. And so I'm mm-hmm. just curious, when you say essentialism has impacted you, have you reduced? Is this already a reduced list from what it was before?
0: Yes, it is. But this is why I've read the book three times, right? So,
1: <laughs> Right. If it wasn't still relevant, you only have to read it once
0: right. It's a practice. It's a practice. And so I have to keep reading it and you know getting better at it. This is a stripped down list. I mean, I can't erase the fact that I've got three kids. All those things are all good things. But what happens is that you get those opportunities as you grow and good things start to happen. That means more opportunities keep getting lobbed at you. But looking at them through the lens of essentialism really helps me to say no. And I've gotten really good at that actually. And I do have a rating system and a lot of our listeners don't know what essentialism is. So I want to back up real quick and let's just give a little primer.
1: Yeah, we're going to need to do that.
0: Okay. So first of all, what is essentialism? And then after this, we're going to talk about your podcast because it's so outstanding, but we'll get to that in a minute.
1: Well, essentialism is the disciplined pursuit of less, but better. So instead of getting pulled into all of the noise, all of the Non essentials or the undisciplined pursuit of more that we often can be pulled into. Essentialism is the pursuit of what is essential, the elimination of what is not, and then the creation of a system to make execution of what matters as easy as possible. So it's a philosophy, but then it also has with it a series of practices that allows us to actually become essentialists ourselves. Create essentialist teams and cultures around us. And that is what essentialism is. And how did your journey into essentialism begin? Well, one of the key moments for me in hindsight was when I got an email from my manager at the time that said, Friday between one and two, it would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because <laughs> I need to be at this client meeting. Uh, my wife was expecting, otherwise, that's an even stranger email to receive. But sure enough, on Friday, we're in the hospital. Our daughter's just been born a few hours before. And I'm feeling torn. How can I keep everybody happy? And so to my shame, I went to the meeting. And I remember my manager saying, well, look, the client will respect you for the choice. You just made to be here. But uh, I'm not sure the look on their faces evinced that sort of confidence. Even if they had, and even if it, it led to some amazing thing, it still would be clear that I made a fool's bargain. Right violated something more important for something less important and I learned the simplest of lessons which is if you don't prioritize your life someone else will and and that's really what's given me fire for the deed in not just writing essentialism the book but also in taking essentialism out into the world uh, is this feeling that people maybe need the invitation to take responsibility for that prioritization and not to allow that to be made by other people out of the forces around them.
0: And so if that's what an essentialist is, somebody who would look at that and say, no, that's not essential. What's essential is that I stay here to be here with my wife and new baby. And then I guess a non-essentialist, you were being a non-essentialist in that moment. What else categorizes someone as a non-essentialist? And why do you say non-essentialism is
1: everywhere? Here's a litmus test people listening to this can immediately apply. Have you ever felt busy but not productive oh yeah have you ever you know said yes just to please have you ever felt like you're you were getting stretched too thin at work or at home do you feel like your day is being hijacked by other people's agenda for you yeah anyone who's saying yes to any or perhaps even all of the above it has been pulled into non-essentialism the way of the non-essentialist and they haven't almost certainly chosen that really deliberately they haven't said, I just want to be busy, but not productive. I just want to be stretched too thin. They've got there by default. And non-essentialism is a default setting. And so we're going to tend towards being in that path. And essentialism, therefore, becomes either a choice people don't even know about, or once they do know about it, they need to make it intentionally, deliberately. And I find that the noise in the world... The voices, the social media, the email, all of that makes it so that we will find ourselves unintentionally becoming non-essentialists.
0: Is there anybody that you've met in real life who you think exemplifies what it means to be an
1: essentialist? Absolutely. I think that, I mean, first of all, all you have to do is think of somebody who is really focused on what matters. And they just keep coming back to it. Uh, we're not looking for an extreme guru at the top of a mountain in order to find an essentialist. It's somebody who's engaged in the wrestle. So for example, I tend to think that there are two kinds of people in the world, not to oversimplify anything. And the first group are the group that are lost. Uh, and the second group are the group that know they are lost. And an essentialist just fits into that second category. They just where they need to keep on asking, well, what's important now? And then half an hour later, well, what's important now? And they just keep coming back gently but frequently, a disciplined pursuit towards these things that really are essential. The people that inspire us, it, generally speaking, will be more towards the essentialist side of things because they're What we are inspired by is that they have done something that's special. They've done something that was meaningful, and that means they were making trade-offs. It's uh, so so. so, Rather than give you a single example, I just think that there's many in our lives. We just need to be looking a particular way, Uh, and that particular way. It's like we have to take off the lens of non-essentialism and these glasses that have blinded us and see the world the lens of what matters and suddenly we will see people that are you know they're saying yes when other people are saying no they're saying no when other people are saying yes they're, they're happier about it they're more at peace themselves they're more in, in tune with their most important relationships and they're quietly getting on with the mission they feel called to do instead of doing everything that everyone else is doing and trying to Compete with thousands of other
0: people. Yeah. And I like that you gave some really concrete examples in the book. One that was the first thing that I adopted a while ago was your monk mode email. So you have an email that was on auto reply. And when you were writing the book and you said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm in monk mode and, you know, I'll get back to you. I'm writing a book and I'll get back to you after that. And I just thought that was such a small but smart thing to do. And that worked for me as well. I wish I'd just keep it turned on all the time, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. The, another that I've been experimenting with recently uh, in COVID times that's worked really well is at five, I have a work office uh, at home and I leave there, join the family and I announce it loud. So make a bit of a song and dance about it, but it holds me accountable. So I literally, as I leave the office, will look at the clock. and sort of call out uh, like the town crier, uh, you know, it's five o'clock or it's 4.59 or it's 5.03 or whatever. And this just helps create a boundary so that it doesn't just become this uh, endless flow. You know, It's not like at five o'clock all the work I could possibly do is done. Of course, there's always more email and there's always more to learn and there's always more projects that could be done, there's always more clients that could be served. And I mean, all these things are infinite uh, or close enough to infinite that you can just call it that. And, and so it's just about having a set boundary. So it's become kind of a fun thing in our family, and the children notice it and they smile about it and they laugh about it, but they also know what time I'm joining them. And that's an example that I found to be quite effective in these unusual What things. what are the age, what's the age range of your kids? I have four children, uh, the youngest is 11 and the oldest is 17, so similar to uh, the age range that you're describing.
0: Yes, exactly. So, I listened to your podcast episode where you spoke with a frontline nurse in the UK. I can't tell you how it hit me at exactly the right time because I have been looking through essentialism through the lens of COVID with four kids. It's a whole other kind of decision-making. I feel like every day I'm making life or death decisions because I don't know what it's like in the LA area, but for us, and I don't know if your 17 year old is college bound yet, but for us, you know, we're dealing with like in this moment, his university is going back like full force, and they're making us choose the parent. Are you going to let them go, or are they, are they going to be virtual? And then the elementary kids, the, our other children, same thing. There, it's pretty much like they're putting this on the parents. And then you have elderly parents. Do you visit them? Do you not? You know, it's it feels like every day is this life or death decision. And I know a lot of other people. On top of that, you know, maybe they've lost their jobs. Like, what is essential when the whole world is just. I don't know, seems to be on On fire fire. around (laughs) you. Yeah.
1: Yes. I mean, we're all involuntary essentialists now. Mm -hmm. When all of this first happened, it was, for me, such a striking thing. Of course, we all thought it was unthinkable, but from the lens of having uh, tried to take essentialism out into the marketplace of ideas and into people's lives, I just have found it fascinating to suddenly see The global community, almost literally overnight, being sent, you know, not unkindly, go to your room. (laughs) Right. You you, you have a good thing about this. And suddenly, everybody, whether they meant to or not, want to do or not, they really were confronted, whether they were using these exact words or not, with the question, well, what's essential now? What really matters now? Everybody. I just don't care who you are. Everybody has had to reprioritize as a result of these changes. They've had to wrestle with new trade-offs. And so I see this as a great opportunity to have a great reset. We could have a great reset at a society level, but but that, that's all just overwhelming anyway. So just at the individual level, just saying, okay, well, what do I want? What really matters to me? Forget going back to something. There's no going back, but there never ever is in life, is there? There's no, you can't re- rewind a clock. So there's just what do you want now? And I think that's, I mean, there was a, a YouGov poll in the UK that said that only 9% of the population want to go back to how things were before anyway. I believe it. So now it's an opportunity to design something new. So for me, what, how I see this is we've gone from being involuntary essentialists, and I would like to encourage people to be voluntary essentialists. How do we step into this? take control of this for ourselves. There's so many things we can't control. Well, anything you can't control, anything you can't control goes into the non-essential bucket. Right? Like ah. we, we shouldn't waste any time, not one ounce of energy on things we cannot control. That's a huge burden off, I hope, for people.
0: It, is, it rescues me. When I heard you talked about this on the podcast episode, and you talked about three concentric circles. And when you did that, you cannot imagine the relief that you brought to me, and it was talking about how non-essentialists work from the outside in, and essentialists work from the inside out. Can you talk about that for
1: a moment?: It's the world's simplest idea. So three concentric circles. on the outside, you just have all the other. This is just like all the stuff out there. So what's out there? I mean? The Non-essentialist starts out there. They start by reading the news endlessly, watching the news endlessly, getting all fired up about this thing or that thing or what this person said or what that person tweeted or this, you know, just all the stuff out there. Email is out there. Social media is out there. Any number of problems out there. Number two concentric circle is our most important relationship. So now we're moving towards the center. So number two is most important relationships and the problem is that if you start out there as a non-essentialist does there's nothing left of you when you get to your most important relationships to your family relationships specifically so they get short shrift of you by the time you are engaged with them by the time you're back with them even if you're with them physically emotionally you're not there emotionally you're not available you don't have the energy for it and so they get a sort of Fragmented version of you, or a, thinking like a like a ghostly version of you, and then at the inside of the circle, the, the third and final circle in the center, it is you. It's to protect the asset, and the problem is that if you go outside in, by the time you get there, there's just nothing left for that, and so it repeats the cycle. Because what people do is, one person I was talking to you recently spends two hours scrolling through Zillow at midnight. Day after day, instead of going to sleep, because they're trying somehow to relieve this tension, that leave this pressure, somehow they're trying to recuperate, but of course they're doing it in a way that doesn't create any new energy for them, they don't get the sleep that they need, and so they wake the next day, also tired, and the cycle continues. So what makes this the simplest idea in the world is the tiny switch. The essentialist simply works from the inside out. They start by protecting the asset. Then from there they move into their most important relationships. And from there they then, at peace with themselves, healthy themselves, at peace with their most important relationships, are able to better discern which things out there should receive their attention. In fact, they're sort of required to be more discerning because there is, in fact, less time. They can't simply solve whatever problems out there by just spending more and more time and endless as if it's an endless flow. Because so much time is already spoken for in the first two circles. And so you become more discerning and more thoughtful. And as it turns out, you're going to make a far greater contribution by being discerning about which few things to do rather than, you know, just undiscerning, going about anything that's tapping on you from out there.
0: So you just rushed by it kind of quickly, but you talked about protecting the asset. And in this powerful interview on your amazing podcast, by the same name as the book Essentialism with Greg McEwen, it was so powerful because she said, yeah, oh yes, I I hear what you're saying. I've heard the you know, put the oxygen mask on on yourself before you put it on your child. And you immediately swooped in and you were like, no, 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 this is not that. This means to truly see yourself as an asset, a real true asset in and of yourself. It is independent of anyone else. You are an asset and you must protect that asset. And I just thought that was incredibly helpful. I think because I was just right there with this woman. I was just feeling everything she was feeling right in that moment. So,
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that because one of the things that this isn't quite what you're getting at, but... We're just experimenting with this with the podcast, doing what I'm calling essential interventions, Uh where I just want to talk with people in everyday situations about how they can apply essentialism for real. So there's the book version, which no matter how well you write a book, no matter how thoughtful you are about it, of course, doesn't can 't bridge perfectly to a person's individual life circumstances so there's a there's a space a necessary gap between the ideas and the person who's reading them and so I love the journey to be able to go from the you know where somebody's really at and to be able to connect it back to essentialism and so we won't do it every week at least at first but I'm actually asking people to write to me if they have nominations for people that they would like to they think ought to have an essential intervention, either because they're just doing good things in their life, but struggling, or maybe it's themselves. They want to advocate for why they should be uh, have this intervention. And so if people want to do that, they just need to go to essentialism.com and send an email to my team and, and have the opportunity to be considered to be on the, on the podcast. But I love it. I love the intervention process. It's, it's where my heart really goes to with essentialism. Rather than to, to talk about it, it's to do it. Right.
0: Yeah. And I'm curious about that. You know, like you look at some famous, you know, let's say famous songwriters and every time, you know, I'm now, of course, I'm completely spacing on like somebody who wrote a famous song, but (laughs) name a famous song. I don't know. Yesterday. No, the Beatles have too many songs. What's a good song? Well, it's just that, you know, I always sort of feel bad for that star, you know, that like 50 years into their career, they still have to sing that song. And not that I feel bad, Uh, I I said that the wrong way, but I'm always curious, do they hate it? Do they hate that song so much that they have to keep singing that song? And I think when you write a book, called essentialism, (laughs) like what is more essential than the essential? So like, where do you go from there? But I'm really only half kidding because obviously there's so much you can do with that. But I'm wondering, do you get a little tired talking about the book?
1: I don't at all. Although I will have to say, we we keep dancing around something here and I think we should just go there, but I haven't once been bored of the subject. It's one of the reasons I chose the subject was because it's such a good encouragement for me to live it right it helps me to have those ideas go through my mind not once or twice or 10 times even if someone to read the book 10 times for me of course now it's been hundreds and hundreds of times thousands of times perhaps by now and i just love it because i believe that when we hear an idea a second time we don't just remember it as people tend to say oh that's a good reminder what actually happens every time we have a second impression of our idea it goes deeper in us And line upon line, layer upon layer, it becomes a part of us. And so at some point, we're not learning about essentialism, and I'm not teaching of essentialism. You become an essentialist. It's the way you think. It's the way Mm -hmm. you act. And you become something that you weren't before. And the thing that we're dancing around here. (laughs) but I don't know that you want to go there, but is we should just do this now instead of talking about essentials and we should just apply it to you. That's, that's I what I feel it. is here. Okay, what's good. You, what's yeah, your I'm about all about
0: that? it. Yes. Let's do it. I guess.
1: So here we go then. So, so Jen, just tell me what is something that's really, really important to you, essential to you that you're under investing in right now? My family, my kids. Okay. So you've got these three children. You said that, in answer, I mean, I asked it this way, so I said, something really important to you, and, uh, and, and now I want you just to tell me, put into your words, why why are your kids important to you? Now, that, so that sounds obvious, but I want you to try and put it into words.
0: Because they bring me so much joy, they're awesome little people, and they feel like the most important thing I've ever created. I mean, to say I created them, that sounds a little bit weird, but, you know, they're like the best things I ever did.
1: These people are the people you are proudest of, the things yes. you are proudest of in your life. You're amazed by them.
0: Every moment that I spend with them, I am amazed by them.
1: So level one for your why it matters is because you're enamored with them because they're amazing. That's level one. So why does that matter so much to you?
0: Why does it matter that they're amazing? It matters that they're amazing because, I mean, it doesn't matter that they're amazing. It matters. I mean, it just matters that they exist and I love them. It's so hard to say. I don't know how to answer that. I'm being a terrible
1: No, uh, you're, not. no you're wrestling just, with it. You're yeah. wrestling with it and that's just what you're supposed to be doing. It's not easy to put into words the why of something that's so deep and important to us and to you.
0: But isn't it that kids are just, your children, your offspring, like aren't, it just comes with the package. Like intrinsically, they are your children. And therefore, I mean, of course, there's the outliers, parents that maybe have problems where they abandon their children. But by and large, don't parents all think of their children as the center of their world? Or at least if they aren't the center, they at least feel that they should be the center.
1: What you're saying to me, I think, is that this is a universal feeling that you have. It's just in the moment of them being born. Yes. In the moment of you conceiving, the moment of life, you feel this deep bond of like, my mission, my life is now to protect you. Yes. Nurture you. Yes. Yes love you I mean it's almost like you're saying it's just biological but it's biological and spiritual and it's certainly like at a raw level yes this is your work more give me one more level of why why does that matter so much why does it matter to you to pursue this thing that sparked within you was birthed within you as they were born why does it matter so much to fulfill that spark
0: because, well, I mean, I feel a huge responsibility that there is no question that that must happen. But more than that, I would just say that when I'm with them or when I do well, nothing feels as good or as satisfying. So if I'm parenting well, you know, I don't question that. And I've used this example before, and this is not to stir up any kind of controversy between bottle feeding and breastfeeding, but it's a good example, I think. And that is, it was the one part of parenting that I never had to second guess myself about because I just knew it was good and I felt so good about it. And so I did that and I struggled as many new moms do because it's really really hard, but then I did it and I I was committed to it and it felt so good because I was taking the best care and giving my baby the best I could possibly give and I didn't have to second guess that. But I think everything after that <laughs> Was like, oh, I don't know if I'm doing a good job at this, you know?
1: What you really, I think, are saying to me is that the risk of failure, the fear of failing at this cuts right down to the heart for you. Yes. It's raw that this is your job. It's so deep. You can't quite find the words for it, but this cannot be failed. That failure cannot be the outcome. It's just so deep in you.
0: Yes, exactly. Failure cannot be, failure is not an option.
1: Okay. So now I'm going to contrast that a little against the feeling of, oh, but maybe I'm not doing as much as I would like to be doing. So let's get clear about that. So it's instead of a general sense, what mm-hmm. does success look like for you with your children? How would you know that you weren't underinvesting?
0: I think it would – I mean, part of it is – I have to think about each kid individually sort of because part of it is out of my control now with their ages. So I would like to say I would know that because we would be at the dinner table all together laughing and we'd have our movie night. And, you know, those are some of our best times together. Mm -hmm. And again, I feel really nourished and I feel like I'm doing a good job. And I see – and they love it. Like I see – you know, they might – argue, oh, I don't want to do family dog. I don't want to watch Netflix or i you know I've got something I got to do, I can't do dinner, but when we do that and we make a real effort and they show up and we talk around the table and not you know nothing fancy just that that kind of stuff, they light up, and I see they they are very content, you know, and so that makes me
1: happy. You give me quite a concrete answer, which I think is because is really helpful about this. This dinner plus a movie, but it's the dinner plus the conversation plus enjoy the movie together. It's being together. It's not just watching a movie. It's very different. For example, if you have a family watching different movies or on different devices in different rooms, Mm -hmm. it's something different about having that little experience together. It's sort of storytelling. And now you have a common story you can refer back to. And so I can see this, this description. The question I asked was about what success looks like, and you've identified an example of success. Does Mm. success look like doing this more? I mean, you doing it 50% of the time and you wish you were doing it 90% of the time. What's the delta?
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose maybe having it more routine or just doing it more, because I am the one who does have to spearhead this. My husband does sometimes as well, but it's not like the kids are going to make this happen. So- It would be doing this more. Yes.
1: How often do you do it now?
0: When COVID first started, like when the lockdowns first started, it was so nice. I mean, it's so funny to look back on those days with a bit of nostalgia. Exactly. It was just, you know, because it was, it was, it was so bad, but so good. And in that, like we were, it was regular. It was uh, three, four nights a week. And, you know, now the world is churning again, but sort of like not really. And so. You know, it's like, it's just very, it's just a very weird time. And it's, and so so now I don't even know that.
1: Ambiguous. It's it's half restarted, half not started. Some days it's open, some days it's closed. And so it's made it harder for you as a family to just have one sense of reality. We are all here together and we need to kind of be together just to stay sane. That unity born of the catastrophe of covid is past so now it has to be brought about by a different a different type of leadership so there's two things i'm really hearing here one is that you'd like to do it more i still don't know quite how much and the second is that right now it's completely dependent on you you would like it not to be so dependent on you so we'll deal with both of them but how often are you doing it now not post you know but Back in the day, how often are you doing it now? And how often do you want to be doing it?
0: Go. I would just say now we're not once every You're not doing two it. weeks. Like, it, like we might run into each other in the kitchen and I'll sit down and eat and a movie might happen, but we're not organizing it. So we're not really
1: doing it. Yeah, I hear you success for you, what would the next level of success be? So we're not looking for perfect, mm-hmm. but we're saying, okay, what is a goal that if you achieved it, you would say, you know what, we've made some progress.
0: If we could do it once a week.
1: Yeah. So you have a night, you pick a night, it's dinner and movie together, and you're going to be organized around that. Okay. So let's move towards making this happen. So first, when would you like to do it? What night, we sent Sunday. Yes, Sunday. And so there's two approaches, and I already mentioned this, but this is really important distinction. One approach is to make this happen through your effort. So it happens because you rally everybody, because you make the dinner happen, because you pick the movie, because you put it on, because you grab everybody, you pull them back. And there's a whole set of things there. Probably then it includes you tidying up, cleaning up, throwing things away, making other people do it. The problem with that approach is that it's so dependent on you that if you aren't up for it, if you're tired out, if you don't quite have it today, it won't happen. It's completely dependent on that. It also, of course, puts a greater drain on you because it's it's all you. Every action is your action. So what I would encourage you to do is to, is to think about an easier approach. A little investment up front that pays dividends many, many times. So the difference between linear results, which is you get everyone going, it happens. But every time you do it, you start from zero. Then you say again, okay, this is the day, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to make it happen. The residual result, of course, is one that happens repeatedly. In a perfect residual result scenario, you could do nothing, and it would still happen. You know, like that's the range we're talking about. The, the fullest residual result, you could literally be in another country and it would still happen. Or maybe even like we could pass away and it would still happen. You know, so that's the extreme that we're going for. So, well, how can we take a step towards that kind of residual scenario where it's less dependent on us? Well, what's your first thought when I put that question to you? What's
0: the next step we could take to make it residual?
1: Yeah, to make it less dependent on you. How oh. could you leave in this situation in a way that makes the result you're looking for happen without it all being on you.
0: Well, being the organizer and the the taskmaster that I am, I would probably like create a spreadsheet mm-hmm. and ask people to, you know, sign up for days that they wanted to fix the meal or and maybe, you know, a list of movies that we could choose from from like a month out so we don't spend an hour going back and forth about what movie are we going to watch <laughs> right. when we turn on Netflix. Right. You, you know? don't have to scan
1: through that and, and spend half your evening looking and scrolling and scrolling. Yeah, that's exactly right. 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 I know that.
0: I yeah, you that. know, because you've got the span of 11 to 17 too, because the 17-year-old movies aren't necessarily the 11-year-old movies. And the movies mom and dad like are definitely not the movies that oh you gotta watch so and so and it didn't age very well and anyway right but yeah so
1: you got a spreadsheet that you can create yeah it has it simplifies the decision making with the the movies you have a pre selected set of movies to choose from you could even schedule those potentially you could have a calendar of who's in charge of the meal for that night uh, more other thoughts from you.
0: Yeah, no, that's what I can do. I love that. That's a good starting place. That's doable. I mean, it sounds doable. I think just that would go a long way just to get their buy in.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're using, which I fully support, sort of business language for this problem you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. A similar problem in your business, you might have more intuitive approach or more habit, muscle memory around how you might solve this and delegate it. But sometimes in family, we don't apply some of the useful principles. So we just let it go very undermanaged, underled a home situation. Yeah. And it becomes a bit more reactive. So one more thing, you use the word buy-in, and I could imagine that the first order of business, maybe after you put some of the thoughts in your spreadsheet. So maybe it's not first order, second thing. You do the spreadsheet, you bring it out, and you really have a family council about it. Begin that habit of really getting everyone together and just talking Mm -hmm. through things, recognizing that it may or may not go well, that conversation, but it doesn't matter because you're just introducing a way of making decisions together. And so you can start that by saying, well, listen, let me just tell you the most important people to me are all of you. Let me tell you why, because it's like deep, deep in me to be able to be there for you, to not fail at this. And so to say I love you doesn't do it at all. You are my life, and to fail at this would be is un- impossible for me. And so one of the ways that su- what success looks like for me is that when we get together, we just all enjoy being together. It doesn't have to be intense, but we're in the room together, we're eating together, we're watching a movie together, and I'd like to make that happen once a week or you know, make it easy for that to happen going forward. I'm trying to summarize the conversation you and I have had in a way that you can initiate that counsel with your family.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't think you're supposed to make me cry on my podcast. I think it's okay for me to cry on your your podcast. But anyway, yeah, I think that's beautiful. That's great. Those words, actually, I'm not um, kind of a mushy-gushy person, you know, so it's hard for me to sometimes talk a certain way. But those words that you gave me, you gave me a little script and they don't feel uncomfortable to me. I think that's because you you paraphrase what
1: I said. So completely. That's great. And by the <laughs> way, the reason I did it is because in teaching I know it doesn't seem like we're going through a very formal process in this conversation. But there is method to the madness, and there is a process behind it uh, when I'm doing these interventions. And and one of the questions I'll ask is, why? Why does it matter? I don't always, always do that. Mm -hmm. But in the many times, and I have told it an enormous number of times now, even where people have a sheet of paper in front of them, and they are going step by step through the process. Mm -hmm. So they are writing out answers to questions on a sheet of paper in front of them Mm -hmm. with preset questions and so on. And there's a section that says, why does this matter? And they write out, why does it matter? And then I say, okay, it's time now to go and have a conversation with someone. It's time to go and talk to whoever it is you need to talk to now. And you can use this form in front of you that you have written out as your script. And before you do it, I'm going to have in the room right now, you're going to, I'm going to have someone stand up and they're going to go through their script with us all so that we can see that and we can practice it. Right. Even when I do all of that, people skip. They literally skip the section about why. Now, they have been taught why it matters. They have thought through it. They have written it out. They have it in front of them. They've been explained that it's a script and they still skip it. And I think it's because people are more vulnerable to explain the why. Mm -hmm. And so they just don't want to do it. But it's the, in some ways, it's the most important part of the process when you get to communicating with other people. We assume that other people know our why. And not only don't they, how could they? Right. We barely know our why. We barely express it. You, finding the words can be tricky. So beginning your family council with that sort of framing of why is, I think, a part of this success journey that we're mapping out for you. The next little piece of it is, I think I would encourage you to to make sure it isn't, and I don't think you would, but Isn't dictated to. It's like, look, I've I've put this together. Let me walk through this. I might. (laughs) You might. Well, sometimes we do. We sometimes parents we tilt towards a greater level of control that's helpful, right? Either under controlling or over controlling. And what we're trying to do is find this respectful place where we're having a council, we're having a conversation, and if we come to it prepared, that always helps. But then, okay. What do you think about this idea? How do you feel about it? Is this something you'd like to do? If you would like to do it, how often would you like to do it? Let each person have a say. You know, try to have, we've done it in our family sometimes formally where we'll give each person like a, a pencil or something, whatever the thing is, an object. And while they are, they while they hold it, they only can talk. And they get a chance to speak. And then it gets past the next person and they speak. And it, it helps. Oh, we need that. Yeah, we it need helps that. to establish this uh, greater level of equality of communication. And so I remember, actually, when one of the first times we introduced this, my son, Jack, who was young at the time, I suppose he was probably four or something. We were in the next mealtime together, and we weren't using it that day. And he specifically asked for it. Because he realized that if he didn't have it, he wouldn't be hurt uh, at the same <laughs> level. And so he asked for it. And we even now will facilitate. My job is, is often facilitating. And oh, no, it's Jack's turn. Oh, no, it's Grace's turn. And you're you're going around to make sure that everybody gets to have a voice, whatever their birth order, uh, whether they're a parent or not, so that we can hear everyone and get this this ability to work together. What I've found is that as my children get involved in it and we make plans together and we organize it together, you, of course it won't work perfectly, but that's part of the process is that you say, okay, well, we're going to try this and then we'll come back together and we'll have another family council about this and we'll, we'll adjust as we need to. But as you divide up roles and responsibilities, I think that, you know, And then you recognize, well, we're going to, this is a journey. It's a long term journey. We're going to get to the point. Maybe it's over, maybe it's over 90 days. And I know this sounds like, maybe it sounds like overkill for such a small change with just dinner and movie. But if you think about it as an, as a part of developing your family culture, that developing this essentialist culture around what you value and what your family values, it can become very natural for people. And so, At first, you, maybe you have to bring out the spreadsheet every week and go, okay, let's just remember, you know, okay, dad's in charge of getting the food. So, so's in charge of getting the the movie set up. So, so's in charge of uh, getting out the place, whatever, you know, whatever you've divided it up. You might have to retrain that, remind everybody, and you just uh, build, bake that into your process. And what you can find over a period of time, you make the investment up front, but over a period of time, this goal that you have can become so normalized, so routine, each person's responsibility such a no-brainer that it actually does become effortless. It's going to happen. It's going to happen.
0: It's funny when you were talking about the residual effect. Immediately, I was thinking of my good friend's family, and they always had this you know, family dinner on Sunday night. And then, you know, the kids had their own kids. So the grandkids and the kids now coming to the house every Sunday, it was just what you did. And when the matriarch, the grandmother died, they still, and you said, like, even after we're not here, it might carry on. It still carries on. Yeah, they just keep going. And because it was part of their culture. Exactly. And hopefully it's not too late for us, but I'm definitely going to do this.
1: No, it's absolutely not too late, because what happens next always matters most. And so you starting today with this I mean, we started with the word residual, and that's precisely what I mean, but let's expand residual to mean intergenerational. Suddenly, if you take an intergenerational perspective, and you say, well, it's a bargain. If I can set up a new normal, a new habit, a new family tradition, and I can implement it, well, fine. If it takes a few weeks of training and and adjustments and, wow, that didn't work. Guys, why didn't this work tonight? What was? Why did that become miserable for us all? Okay, let's talk about it. Let's keep adjusting, keep learning together. Let's be humble as parents. And for all of our children, they can be leaders too. Of course they can be. In fact, that's exactly what we want for them. And so we want to be able to treat them as either leaders already or certainly people that can become leaders. And so this relatively modest effort can be repaid many, many times over as you think about it as a very long-term change rather than just, hey, we'd like to have a few more dinners together. I was going to riff on more on that, but I feel like I've riffed already.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah. have you ever heard, I don't know who said this, but they said, don't meet your heroes. Have you ever heard that?
1: I have heard that, yes.
0: And I understand it because have you met the person you just thought was great and then you meet them and they're just, they're really not. And it's really it's quite a letdown, <laughs> um, and so. You know- It's the way I feel when I interview someone I really like on the podcast. I'm always hoping, please, you know, I hope they live up to this way that I see them. And I have to tell you that you have far exceeded anything I could have imagined you to be. You've already had this huge impact on my life, on my business. And then after today, oh my gosh. So I'll let you know how it goes. We're going to do this, but I thank you for the bottom of my heart. Listeners, if you want to hear more from Greg, and I know you do, make sure and subscribe to his podcast, Essentialism, wherever, you get your podcast, or you could go to essentialism.com and subscribe there. But when you're at essentialism.com, make sure and sign up for his very, very outstanding newsletter. Greg, thank you so much. I just, I can't thank you enough.
1: It's been such a pleasure. Thank you.